Welcome to LevyCast. My guest, former Bulls great Bill Weddington. I don't have to give you that much of an intro because in the next couple of weeks, everybody's going to know exactly your entire life story and they're going to ask you the same question over and over and over again. What's it like to be interviewed by me? Yeah, exactly. But they're not going to know my life story. They're going to know Michael's life story. Is it? And and they're still gonna they're still gonna ask me what's it like to be interviewed by Dan. So it's that's all good. That's that's where it all is gonna settle when the uh, when when the dust settles. It won't even be former Bulls player. It'll be former interviewed by Dan Levy. Is it? Does it ever get annoying? The questions about Michael Jordan in those days. Are you ever like, I really don't want to talk about those days? Uh, no, because <clears throat> they were great days. I mean, now it gets a little bit annoying. At moments like this where, I mean, my phone's off the hook right now with the documentary coming out and everyone wants to talk about it and what's going on because there's just so many of it. But in a normal scheme of life on ordinary days, it's not bad. You might get a couple of questions a week of what's it like. And especially because it was so long ago, most of the young people don't remember. And uh, most, most of the people that really do care already know. Well, that is true. Again, when I uh, when I was in high school is when the Bulls were, were doing their, their run, and I was actually in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was watching the entire run because, let's face it, in Omaha, Nebraska, there's nothing else to actually do except for watch WGN, so that's why most people are Cub fans and definitely Bulls fans out there. I was always I was always a fan of you because I just like dunking, and you were one of the guys on the Bulls who would just dunk everything. So I was always like, I, I loved Bill Weddington's game because I was like, just give that guy the ball. He's going to dunk everything in the basket. <laughs> uh, I tried. I, I started doing that in high school. My high school coach told me, if you're around the rim, dunk it. Always go up to dunk the basketball. And if you get fouled, maybe you'll still have enough energy and strength to go up and, and lay it in. So I started that in high school. But I just want to go back to the beginning of that question where you were talking about you were in high school watching. Is that your way of making me feel old? No, it's me making you feel that I looked up to you so much. And it is, and to be honest, there is a part of me that's like, I got into this into this uh, business because I couldn't play basketball because I wanted to play. And I would look up to guys like you, and I was like, man, I think I, my game would be like yours. <laughs> yeah. I was like, if I was his size, I would try to pretty much foul everybody and dunk every basketball in and try to do it. Now, you've actually been two different sides because you actually played against Michael Jordan and then you played with him. I guess the question is, when you played against him, were you one of those guys who are like, okay, if that guy comes down the uh, comes down the lane, I'm just going to crush that guy? Or is it one of those things like an unwritten rule in the NBA, like if you were to hit that guy, bad things come to you? Well, not if you're on Detroit or New York. <laughs> those two teams know it's, if you don't hit them, you're in trouble. Um, no, it's more of just a reactionary thing. And we... I remember uh, playing against him when I was in Dallas, and uh, he's just so quick. And you know, I was not necessarily right on him. So when he beats his men, you got to come over and try and help. And uh, a couple times, you know, he got to the basket and dunked on it. But then there'd be a couple times where uh, where I would get to the basket and he'd try to block a shot and dunk on him. But uh, one story is really cool. Uh, When I was in Sacramento, we got I got switched on to him in a double team and, and he just such such a smart player and he starts backing me up out to half court. And so I'm going out a little bit and I realize that he's so much faster. So I'm not following him all the way up to the three, uh, to half court, but I start slowing down 
at the three point line and said, "All right, now he's doing something. All right, he's gonna he's gonna try and beat me now." And so I get ready for him to make a move, and all of a sudden he like does a little fake, and I kind of drop my hands down a little bit to move, and he just throws the ball like right by my left ear. And Bill Cartwright was right under the bass of the guy I was guarding, wide open, and gets a layup. Oh. And I'm like, or actually, I think he dunked the ball. And I'm sitting there going, oh, what an idiot I am. I mean, he, he pulled me out far enough to make sure that you know, our point guard who was, or our guard who was guarding him uh, on Bill Cartwright and then tried to rotate out, left Bill Cartwright wide open. So just a smart player. And as obviously as I played with him, I understood that – he really understood the game spacing and what he had to do and what he could do to win a basketball game. And with that being said, you, I mean, we're a center in the league. So that means your, uh, your tasks were a lot different. You weren't going against like the quicker guys. You weren't going against those kind of guys. You were going against like Shaquille O'Neal and Patrick Ewing when he was in his prime and guys like that. Did you have, I mean, I know you weren't necessarily always starting, but did you ever like, all right, I have to go up against Shaq. This is going to hurt. <laughs> Whatever I do, I got to get oh. minimal. You're, you're, whether you start or not, you're going to play in the game. You're going to play against all the centers. And I played uh, played against Shaq. I played against uh, Patrick Ewing, uh, Matumbo, Morning, uh, uh, Akeem Olajuwon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Mark Eaton. Uh, we played against, pretty much played against them all. So Moses Malone, when I first came in the league, was still playing. So, so when you when uh, you when you rank those guys, and I know but, you came in at different different times uh, of their career, who would you say was like, wow, that guy was the best I've ever played against? Kareem Kareem was tough, and and I got Kareem last three years of his career, last few years of his career. And you couldn't stop that sky hook. And I it was I'll tell you what, one story is we're, we're playing the Lakers relatively early in my career. And, you know, I'm looking at Kareem and he's my childhood guy growing up, man. He's a center. He plays for a while. So I get on the floor and Dick Mata was a coach of the Mavericks and all Dick was saying, the whole scout was just bump him off the lane, bump him off the lane. Do not let him catch the ball in the low post. Uh, you know, you, it's just too hard to stop the sky hook. And it was. Uh, so I'm getting the game, a sub in, and Kareem's coming down the floor slowly, you know, jogging down slowly. Matt Johnson bringing the ball up. And he gets to the foul line, and I start bumping him out. And he's not fighting me at all. He's just <laughs> letting me bump him, and I bump him out. He's now 18 feet away from the basket. We're almost at three-point line. And I think, okay, that's all right. So I t- get arm's length away, and I'm kind of out here. And all of a sudden, Magic, from the top, kind of lobs the ball over the, the top to Kareem. He's 18 feet away from the basket, almost at the three-point line. Catches the ball puts his back to me. And I'm like, all right, now I'm on. I'm like, all right, what's he going to do? Doesn't face me up. He's got his back to me. Looks over his right shoulder. And I kind of like, okay, and he's looking on here and just pivots into a sky hook and shoots the ball. I'm thinking to myself, all right, who's going to make an 18, 19 foot sky hook, turn around, box him out. Like, okay. And I watched the ball right through the middle of the net, like a, a swish. Wow. And I could hear, and I could hear Dick Mata yelling from the bench. I told you to bump him out. I'm like, coach, you're three feet left in the court. He's <laughs> out. Like, oh my goodness. That is <laughs> just, it was, I mean, it was just amazing. But uh, the, honestly, the, the two hardest guys to guard, in my opinion, and no disrespect to any other, other centers uh, in the league because there's so many, but 
Akeem Olajuwon was was really tough to play. He was so fast, so athletic, had so many moves, mid-range game, shoot the ball, uh, great low post moves with, with the shimmy and the shake uh, down, down low and was just a phenomenal player. He was, he was tough to guard and had great skills. And again, uh, not to take away from anyone else. And then you mentioned him already, Shaquille O'Neal. He's just so strong and so big. It's, there's really no good way to guard him. You just hope you can get him off the box a, a little bit so he can't just turn and dunk it, that he has to at least put it on the floor once or twice where uh, maybe a teammate can come down and help you. But uh, those were the best. And again, Patrick Ewing was tough. I played against Pat in my whole career starting in college because I was at Georgetown. Oh, that's John. right. Yeah, that's right. So so it was uh, it was amazing. But the, the Kim Olajuwon was just so fast and, and his footwork and and uh, uh, momentum on the floor and, and, and the skills in the low post were, were amazing. And Shaq was just so big and strong. It was tough to play him. It, it's always it's always been interesting to me because I've always, you know, as a fan, you watch these guys on television and you watch you guys play and you're like, you don't really get a good grasp for exactly the size of who these guys are. And when I've seen you and I've seen other seven footers, I'm like, God, you guys are so tall. I couldn't imagine playing against you. And the first time I was ever in the locker room and I saw Shaquille O'Neal, I was like, oh, my God, that guy looks like a walking building. He is beyond humongous because of just how big he was. And at the time, I think he only had like 8% body fat. I couldn't imagine yeah. so he, an assignment of that he, going, hey, he, get him out of the get him out of the block. And people see Shaquille O'Neal now and Shaquille O'Neal at the end of his career. But when he was young and playing in Orlando, you know, he was 320, 330, and athletic and, and could jump and run and was strong. And he only got stronger from there. So, so let, let, we'll start with that. I mean, I, I'm not saying at the end of his career he wasn't the same. He was stronger. Right. But that, that's when he was, was, could move and, and bump and grind. And by the end of his career, he'd really refined his game and gotten better and was a much better low post player. He could score a little bit and pass the ball much better. But he could go wherever he wanted on the floor and, and just walk you down. Like, and there was really nothing he could do because he was that strong. Uh, Artis, reminds me of Artis, Artis Gilmore was really like that too. Artis was so strong the way he played and was one of the strongest guys until Shaq. But Shaq was just so big and massive. And, you know, I'm seven feet tall. And I, I, see a lot, I have a lot of pictures of me and, and Luke Longley. And Luke Longley's seven foot two. And Luke just makes me look normal small <laughs> and Shaq makes Luke and Shaq makes Luke look small and and Shaq's really only seven two seven three himself but just so wide and big it, it was just uh, it's just an amazing human being and, and honestly I, and after and and a great guy too by the way I mean I love Shaq he's phenomenal and 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 to, go to, and to totally digress right here the other person I was always in shock of how big they were was Yao Ming and they said he was seven five, but then I've seen pictures of him next to Shaq, who's about seven two, seven three ish, and he dwarfs Shaq. How tall is that guy really? Uh, he's he's he is pretty big. I, I met him in person once he, when he came in. The Bulls were looking at him for the draft and and, and thinking about him. He came in. And he was in the uh, uh, training room and he got to me. He he is a big man, and he again he's another guy that's wide and thick. And just uh, all over. I mean, you talk about guys like Manute Bowl, who uh, was a friend uh, of mine. Cause I knew when I was at St. John's, and he was going to school with Chris Mullins' brother over in Connecticut. But uh, Nudie, Nudie was thin, uh, but 
Yao was just a big man, thick, big boned and, and heavy. <clears throat> and he's, he's another guy I never got to play against him, but he's another guy that had great skills and, and handed footwork uh, in the low post. Now, I wanted to talk to you about a certain thing, too, because a lot of people talk about, you know, the heydays of the Bulls. We'll get to that in a second. But there's a question that I've always had about a certain aspect. You actually joined the Bulls the same year that Tony Kukoc came to the Bulls, too. And prior to that, when yeah. everybody talks about the, uh, you know, the, you know, before Tony Kukoc even came over to the States, Jerry Krause loved him the most. And it got to the point where Jordan and Pippen were so mad at it that in the, ninth, in the uh, Dream Team Olympic Games, they crushed Tony Kukoc and they hated Tony Kukoc. What was it like when Kukoc actually came to the Bulls and Pippen was there? Were they naturally, did they, did they have to warm up to the guy? Were they nice to the guy? Or was it kind of like, did they haze him a bit? How did that, how did that work out when he actually became part of the team? Oh, he got hazed. <laughs> he got hazed. And, and, and in a way, uh, and in a way, it was kind of good that Michael had retired that first year because <clears throat> it was just Scotty. But when Michael came back, he had to kind of go through it all over again uh-huh. and, and get it. But it, it was, and it wasn't Tony's fault. Tony had proved himself. And, and, I, and especially with Scotty, Scotty understood what Tony brought to the table night in and night out and how he could help us be a, a better team. Uh, we went through those growing pains for, you know, two years. But, or, or Tony did, we all did actually trying to figure out how we fit into the, this Bulls uh, franchise and what we can do in the triangle offense. But, I think they understood what Tony could do and how he could help the team. But that was a lot. Again, that's going to go back to Jerry Krause and the things he was saying. And again, I, I was not here, but here you had the best player in the NBA and Michael Jordan, and arguably, in my opinion, the second best player at the time playing in Scottie Pippen in a secondary role. And your general manager is out talking and giving uh, raves to this guy that's over in Europe playing saying he's, you know, the, the next guy that's going to be the big thing in the NBA. And they kind of took offense to that, and as, as I would if he was talking about when, when I was there bringing in another center. So that's just human nature. And, and I think that and knowing and what you're going to see in the, in the documentary is how competitive Michael is anyway. He uses every little thing to push himself and motivate himself to be better. And that, that's, it is interesting to me because – I mean, when Michael Jordan gave that that uh, Hall of Fame speech, and I'd say half the people in the world loved every second of it. The other people, thought, the other half thought it was egotistical. It was angry. It was mean spirited, and all that. I loved it because, I mean, growing up, you're just always kind of curious as to exactly what that guy is. And you know, I mean, I've I've been around him a couple times myself, and I know a lot of people that are friends with him. And I've just kind of learned that he was insane, <laughs> mentally insane when it came to competing. And speaking of competing, it is also known that you used to play one-on-one with Michael Jordan quite a bit. What was that like? I was talking, Michael wanted the challenge, but also he wanted to challenge you. So he was going to play one-on-one with anyone and everyone that wanted to play at the end of the game. And every now and then he'd pick a guy that he just wanted to see what they're made of. And you you went out and played and you, you did your best. I, he was good and obviously as a big man for me it was a lot tougher because he's so much quicker than I am and people don't understand that you look around and you see all these guys out on the floor and big guys and they're they look slow but then you put us on I, I used to play basketball with my my friends and and hockey and uh, tennis and stuff and they're like oh my god for a big guy you move fast <laughs> I said no for a big guy I move about as fast as or faster than you 
<laughs> but on the court with the NBA players, I'm slow. <laughs> well, I mean, to be not, slow. And, it, and my, but 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 against Michael, he, he'd take advantage of that. I mean, he was just so quick, and he could shoot the ball. So you have to guard him or challenge a shot. And, and and again, his hand skill is so big and moving to the basketball, pump fake, and he's he's biased. So it makes it tough. You got to try and play the physical game with him. And I I think that's what he wanted at the time. Is, he needed to bang and, and get tough, uh, uh, get ready for games coming up where he know, knew he was going to get banged in, in games going to the basket. The trash talking. Obviously, we're going to see a lot more of that. And apparently, I mean, I've seen little previews here and there of how hard he wrote uh, Scott Burrell and, and guys like that. How easy was, I mean, I'm assuming it, there were a couple times where he may have came at you or been in a situation where it came. Was it, Did it ever come to the point where you and him actually had to be face-to-face and arguing and yelling at each other, or did you just let it roll off your back and just go, you know what, I'm just going to let it roll off because I don't want to get into it with this guy? Well, what, what you have to do, or you have to fight back. And how you fight back is a matter of opinion. And Michael is challenging everyone because he wants to know, are you going to be able to take it? Can he count on you in a big game? Uh, so physically, you have to fight back in the games. And he's going to bump and grind you. You can't back down. you got to keep keep putting yourself in a position to do the right thing on the floor. I never came with me to altercations where we were squared up and swinging. It never even came close to that. But there are a few times there are verbal altercations where things are going on. And uh, I blocked his shot early in one, one practice and the rest of the practice, he made a point of coming over to me and, you know, jumping into me, hitting me and shooting the ball and say, shoot that, uh, block that. And it was on. And I, tr- and we went at it and I didn't back down and I, we just kept going at it. Uh, Conversation-wise, uh, we're after practice w- was always fun because we'd be in the training room and we'd get their treatment, and Michael would start talking about practice, and every every now and then he'd start picking on a guy, a player, something happened, or wanted to see uh, test someone. Are they mentally strong? Are they going to fight back? Are they going to run away? And I had uh, witnessed this for a while. And I realized that one day it was going to be my, my turn. But how do you win a debate when it's, or an argument when it's 13 guys? Because whenever Michael started, the rest of the team jumped on Michael's side. And it was just fun to. Of course. The, 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 the ultimate bully. Taking on one guy. And, it, and it's the old barbershop. You just start and then the trash talk starts. And it just goes and goes and goes. Well, I, I understood that I couldn't win that battle. So I kind of figured out a game plan if it ever happened to me. And. I found out Michael's likes and dislikes and I figured out a plan that, all right, if, if this ever happens, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and lo and behold, halfway through the season, it starts and we're in the locker room and uh, the training room rather, and I'm getting ice on my knees and everyone's talking and all of a sudden it comes up and uh, Michael starts off with trampoline hands. He, he liked to call me trampoline hands. I catch the ball and shoot the ball. And I'm like, that's my job. <laughs> yeah, really. That's what I'm in here to do. I mean, I'm, that's what I'm in here to do. Your defense goes with you. I'm, <laughs> you, shoot, you know, get the ball and you shoot it. He goes, yeah, Trevor, this goes from your hands. You don't even wait. I said, wait a minute. You're the guy passing me the ball. If you don't want me to shoot it, don't pass it to me. <laughs> and, and then it goes on from there, and you can't do this and this and that. And I just stop. I realize, all right, it's starting. We're going to let it go. And when when the guy's not fighting back, it's not fun. So everyone kind of dissipates and thinks it's over, but I know it's not. So we go about my business. I get my weights in and <clears throat> Michael goes up. I think he was getting a massage or something. So 
and I'm paying attention. I'm watching where he is. And he goes in the locker room. Most of, most of the guys have left now. So Mike, Mike goes in the locker room. I wait a little while. And he's getting dressed after he showered up and he's getting ready to go home. And I walk by and I'm getting ready to go in the shower now. And I look at Mike. And I say, hey, Mike, I get it. You know, that's a lot of fun uh, in, in the training room after practice, the kibitzing and the going back and forth. And it's great. I said, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I'm smart enough because I went to St. John, not like North Carolina. They actually teach us stuff there. And... <laughs> Yeah, so you got to go at him. And I said, I tell you what's going to happen. I said, next time you you start that with me, I said, I can't win that argument. I know it. I said, but the next time you start that, you're going to come in your locker, and there's going to be an eight foot snake in your locker when you come in the next morning. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, well, I'm going to keep it clean here. You don't you have do to. You don't have to. It's, I mean, and, I'll, I'll do it. I mean, uh, I, I, I know. You do that, and I'll kill you. And I looked at him and said, okay. But I'll be the dead guy down there, and you'll be the guy with a snake in your locker. <laughs> and, he just looked, and he just looked at me and goes, get out of here. And he never did it again. But you had to, with Michael, let him know that you weren't going to back down, that you were going to be ready for, for because he, he needed to know that he could trust you in a game. And he wanted to, he wanted to win at, and at all costs. He's already said that in the documentary in the first two episodes. He really did want to win at all costs. And if you weren't doing your job, he wasn't happy with you. Because he knew he needed everyone on that floor to do their job all the time because he wanted to win the basketball game. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's about points. But no. It was about winning, and he had the ability to score all those points. And mind you, when you're watching this, you see also he played some pretty damn good defense too. Uh, so it, it's, it, it really was amazing because he made us all better. He made us better physically, mentally, and on the floor he made us better basketball players in, in how to play. So I, I, I admire the man because I, he was so much in demand and was doing so much on the floor for the team in Chicago and, and, and to winning championships. But then off the floor, it was so many people wanted a part of him. It was, it was tough. I, I don't know how he handled it all because it was, it was just amazing to be part of that. Now, the other question is this. There, everybody sees all the Jordan stuff in terms of what he did on the court. Now, being in Chicago and being around as many people as I do, and everybody always if, – if you go into the, around the Chicago media and you go to enough people – People cannot wait to tell you the stories that they have of Michael Jordan. It's just what it is around here. It's like a, it's like an ongoing badge. People oh, can't wait to hear this story. Everybody I know, excluding you because you played against him, but other people I know have had these crazy stories. And every time I've met them, have been four of the most unique situations I've ever met a, a person in my life. And I've seen the competitive side of him where he was once in a softball game against Brian Erlacher and he was wearing all black shirt, all black jeans. He had a cigar in his mouth. And at one point he hit a, he, he, uh, he hit a ball and it, it, it bloomed over to like center field. And he actually slid home in all black in the mud and was happy about it. Cause I could tell he really wanted to make that play, but I've heard of other things yep. where people have beat him in ping pong and then he didn't stop playing ping pong until he beat everybody in the locker room and that person, or he cheated, you know, playing goldfish against like a college roommate's mother. What have you seen these other extracurricular activities where he's so competitive at everything he does, where you're just like, Jesus, this guy's insane. Uh, yes. And it's just, he's got that competitive spirit and that's what 
made him so good. He just wanted to win. And it wasn't just he just wanted to win at basketball. He wanted to win at everything. What else, he, what else if, did you see him and do? If he, got, if he got beat, he was, he was going to figure out a way to win. They played cards on the plane. And they had a, a group back to Scotty, Ron Harper, Randy Brown, and Michael. And uh, it would rotate a little bit. Randy Brown would rotate out, and other guys would rotate in. And I tried to get back a few times, and they yeah, block it out. They're playing Tonkin. And their stakes were a little bit higher than I like to gamble most of the time. But, <laughs> you know, we get back there one day, and we're playing. We're playing. And it's Mike. I took uh, Randy Brown's spot, or you know, Ron Harper and Scotty were there, and we're playing. And I won. And Michael was pissed. And uh, when I say I won, I didn't win a lot. I won like, I won like one hundred and twenty dollars. <laughs> it was it, it was a lot. It was it was just it's like okay, I won. Michael was like, man, you can't play here anymore. Did it? About a month later, someone else was missing. And Michael called, wanting to get back here. I go back and we're playing again and we play and we're going and, and at that time I think I, lost, I ended up losing like two or three hundred bucks and he goes that's it I got your money back now get out you're never playing again <laughs> and I was like, like what do you mean I'll come back and play I'll, you know, I'll lose some more money he goes get out of here <laughs> Jeez. but he, that, that was just it and he, he remembered that I mean he's not going to forget it if you beat him at something you may think it's over and go away and it, it's not not until he gets his revenge and, and beats you back is, is it over. So, But again, if, if, if he wasn't like that, he wouldn't have been who he is and the greatest basketball player ever to play. And that's, and that's what drove him. And he was looking for anything to motivate him to, to get him going in the next game or the next competition, whatever it was. Did he ever go after Rodman? Because I'm assuming that in practices and things <laughs> of that nature – where you're saying everybody had their turn. Rodman seems like the kind of guy where he's just, maybe we leave that guy alone. <laughs> no, here's the thing. Everybody gets their turn if he thinks you're not living up to expectations or doing your job. When Dennis was in practice, Dennis was, Dennis was working just as hard. So the practice wasn't an issue. Now, if Dennis didn't come to practice, <laughs> which happened, <laughs> and then Michael, and you're going to see him talk about that. I think the next, couple episodes are are on uh dennis rodman so we'll see we'll see a little bit of that there and, oh god uh, but it, so it was uh it wasn't a um it, it wasn't a thing where he just picked on guys to pick on guys he was always testing he wanted to find out exactly where you were could you handle the pressure and obviously when michael first came back he didn't know any of the new guys he didn't know Tony. He didn't know Steve Kerr. He didn't know me real well. Although Michael and I had played against each other in the 1981 or with each other, excuse me, 1981 McDonald's all American game. And we played against each other, uh, St. John's North Carolina, uh, uh, once in our college careers, but he didn't really know me as a teammate and how, you know, how I was going to react. So he was testing everyone to find out, are they going to be there when things get tough? Are they going to be there when New York's pounding the crap out of you and, you know, Patrick Ewing or Charles Oakley comes and gives you a beat down? Are you going to get up and fight or are you going to, you know, limp off the court and lick your wounds? And, and he wanted to know because he knew, he knew what was coming up and he wanted to make sure that everyone else understood that. And if he didn't do that to us, I'm going to be honest with you, if he didn't do that in practice, when we did get to those situations, we would have been like a little bit like, oh, oh, here, wow, what's what's going on? And 
we were prepared for it because Michael made every practice intense and, and Phil did too. So when those situations came in games, we were ready for it. Fascinating. Now, let me uh, go back to Dennis Rodman for a minute because everybody is going to go Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Give me your best Dennis Rodman story because even I've been around him a couple of times and they've been crazy. I can't imagine what it was like to be prob- not only just a teammate, but I heard you were, you were friends with him too. <clears throat> Yeah, we uh, we we uh, shared a few meals together, rode motorcycles together, or went out and uh, partook in a few beverages together. Sometimes too many, <laughs> but um, but we had a lot of fun. Dennis is one of the most generous guys you you'll meet in your life. Uh, really willing to give you the shirt off his back, his last dollar, uh, all the cliches that go to, towards generous people. And the thing that was neat about Dennis is he really did want to win and was willing to do what it took on the floor. And it was like Michael in a lot of ways where it was looking for that edge. And if you watch the, the series, the two final series against Carl Malone, he's, he's getting in Carl's head and bothering Carl, doing things to annoy Carl just so he's not thinking about basketball, which is the whole thing with trash talking and Michael, where if he can get you off your game anyway, and trash talking is one way to do it, you're not thinking about basketball. You're thinking about <laughs> trash talking or you're thinking about Dennis Rodman patting you on the butt and Dennis was willing to do whatever it took to win the game. I love Dennis. He was a lot of fun to play with. Very generous. Um, a great teammate. Uh, got, got a little bit caught up in the um, acting side of uh, who Dennis was in the beginning. I mean, you, you saw it progressively getting worse where he became more of his persona uh, as time went on, and, and that was a little bit more of a distraction, I think, especially for him. But I really love him. Uh, he'd go and practice, and the things that he could do to rebound the basketball and watch to watch him play. You watch a lot of times, you know, when we're playing uh, Orlando. You know, he's guarding Shaq, and here's a guy that's six foot nine in sneakers guarding Shaquille O'Neal and doing as good a job as anyone can do. Uh, but that enabled Phil to go with a smaller lineup and a quicker lineup and and find ways to beat teams that had bigger, stronger centers than we were. And even though we had Luke Longley and myself at seven-footers and Robert Parrish, um, Joe Klein, and James Edwards through the years, you know, we could go big or small with our lineups. And that, that gave this team more opportunities to find ways to beat teams. Scotty Pippen, the uh, first two episodes they showed of the uh, the last dance, they, the last one ended with uh, people kind of getting a glimpse at Scotty Pippen and how he, in his Bulls career, he will go down, like you said, probably is, you know, during that time, he was probably the second best player in the NBA. And some would even argue that he was the best player in the NBA when Jordan had left. In terms of teammate wise, you were there for a couple of instances, a Obviously, you were there for that famous game with Scott with uh, Tony Kukoc where he walked off the uh, court. And then there's also been, you know, the portrayal of him showing just how angry he was in management and going to town. I know as a teammate, I've heard that he was a really good teammate in terms of being around guys. But when you saw things like that, what was what? How did your opinion change of his or was that? Did you just kind of know that was in there about him? Like, you know, he's going to be a cool guy, but there's times he's going to lose his cool, and not handle it correctly. Well, and when when the Tony Kukoc incident happened, it was uh, that was really my first. I was just getting to know Scotty, and I'm gonna be honest with you. Scotty's one of my favorite teammates of all time. Uh, I, I love him. He's he's accountable for his actions. 
he makes mistakes. He's human, as we all do. And to be honest with you, that, that 1.8 seconds with uh, Tony Kukoc, he came in the locker room and was contrite right away, admitted his mistake, was uh, told us that he let himself become bigger than the game, and that's not right. And it, it was handled very well. And you saw that right away. And honestly, as a team, that incident was over. Ten minutes after the game was over in the locker room, it was aired out quickly and between us, and it was great. The problem is when the media gets in, <laughs> they stir it up and they talk about it, and they want and they have their own agendas for whatever it is. And as, as a teammate, it was done. Hey, he made a mistake. We all make mistakes. Um, the, the good news is Tony made the shot. It, it showed. Uh, Scotty also that Tony was mature enough and good enough now to kind of relieve Scotty of some of the burden of being the team leader and carrying, carrying the load by himself. So it was really twofold. It was a great learning moment as a team uh, to have that. <clears throat> but Scotty was over it right away. Uh, the incident in the documentary where uh, Scotty felt slighted because he'd signed a long-term contract and was you know the 122nd paid player in the NBA when arguably he was the, with Michael back the second best player in the NBA in the league. And would I have handled that situation differently? Probably yes. <laughs> but I, I understand where he was, Scotty was coming from. He felt slighted. He felt disrespected. <clears throat> he he was upset and he was reacting the way he knows how to react through his life and and what what uh, things happened to him in his life. As a team, we were totally 100% with Scotty because he was part of us. He was our family. We all have brothers and sisters, parents, aunts, uncles who've made mistakes and done things. We don't stop loving them. We try to help them through the, their mistakes and help them. We all supported Scotty. And we, we knew that he had to handle this in his own way. <clears throat> and find a way to get back to help us win because we also knew that we needed Scotty to play for us to, to win a championship. So uh, we supported Scotty and helped, helped him to realize that he needed to come back and play and, and get back with us. But as far as, you know, did that make us change our views towards Scotty? No. It, it, it helped grow us as a family and as a team to be better and stronger. Um, do you even fast forward just a little bit more? Did you ever... Uh... Did Scotty Pippen and Jordan ever get into it like that back in the day, or was Pippen always on his top game because he knew MJ was coming at everybody? Did you ever see those two kind of, uh, you know, squaring up against each other and, and going at no, it? No. They'd square up in practice. And when I say square up, I don't mean fight. I mean go at each other. Right. And because, because, because that's what it was. It was pride. And we wanted – when Phil really wanted to challenge us in a scrimmage – He'd separate the, you know, it's usually in practice you go on starters against the bench guys. And what the bench guys had was we, we would execute very well. Steve Kerr, Judd Bushler, myself, uh, and Tony Kuhn. We would execute the plays, I don't want to say perfectly, but we knew we had to because athletically we couldn't hang with them. <laughs> they were so much better than us. But, so we had, but when Phil really wanted to push us and, and, and get us ready for a big game, He'd take Scotty or Michael and put them on our team. And that would kind of equalize it a little bit. And we'd go at it. And whoever would win the bragging rights for the next couple of days or until we played again, it, it wouldn't stop. 
And that's what it was. It was that that competitive spirit that, hey, we beat you today. You know, you you can't hang with us. We're better. We executed better today. We did this. You know, all right. So Michael scored all our points, but we still beat you, or or the vice versa. If Scotty was with us, and we'd beat Michael, and that was big big time competition. And again, you're talking about one of the guys, the most competitive guy that I've ever met in, in Michael Jordan. And I'm going to be honest with you, Scotty Pittman's not far behind him. And it, it was fun. It, our practices were so intense that when we got in the games, it, I don't want to say it was easy, but it was easier than I'd been on any other teams because our practices were that hard. And we went hard. Everyone played 100% in practice all the time. And anytime you hear Michael, you know, going off at them, it's because he didn't think a guy was came prepared for practice that day or, or in a game, he made mistakes or took plays off or mentally was not there. It wasn't focused. Those are the things Michael got on you about. It's not that he got on you because he didn't like you. Or maybe he did. If you, if, if you didn't come prepared for practice a few days in a row or for a week and didn't respond, yeah, he didn't like you then. Then you were in trouble. Then you were in real <laughs> trouble. But but he, he got on you because you weren't performing up to your best abilities or you weren't doing what he needed you to do to make this team better. What was the, what was it like when you guys would beat Jordan in a practice? Cause I've heard of things where he's been in pickup games where somebody beats him. He will uh, turn a chair around and just stare at the wall for like an hour. Uh, he doesn't want the practice to end when he's losing. So he'll, he'll turn to make it happen again. That's the whole Steve Kerr issue. When, when Michael first came back and, uh, practice was going on and we had the ball and if we scored, we win. We were down one, but if we scored, we want, we would win the game. And we ran a play and Steve set a great screen on Michael and it blindsided Mike. And I don't remember who it was, but went in and scored a bucket. And Michael was not happy. He was really upset. And so, you know, the basket's over. We win. Phil says, all right, that's it. Let's go. Practice it up. Bring it in. Uh, and Michael goes, no, it's not. It's not over. Run that, run that again. And Phil said, no. Practice is over. Michael knows, no, it's not. Run that bleep again. <laughs> Same play. And Phil kind of hums and haws, all right. And runs that. But this time, when Steve comes and set the pick, Michael gave him a cheap shot, a forearm shiver, and just kind of really back Steve up, and Steve went back at him, and then and that was how the fight started. Michael punched Steve in the in the, in the chin, or excuse me, Steve punched Michael in the chin, uh, in the fist with his chin. Jeez. And that that <laughs> that's you know, then, then obviously at that point, practice was over, and you know, Phil sent Michael home. And but you know, when when Steve or Michael tell, uh, Steve tells the story, he'll tell you that Michael called him that night and apologized. But Michael then tell other people that, you know, he respected Steve Kirk because he fought back. And that's what he wanted to see. He wanted to see, were you going to stand up to, to the pressure? Were you going to be there when it really counts? And everything, if you, if, if you understand what Michael's doing, everything's a test. And he wants you to be ready for the moment when it comes. And the guys he trusted were. And, and he, you saw that with the, at the end of the game's or in games when the, the pressure's on the line, he'd pass you the ball if he, if he trusted you because he knew that you were going to do the right thing and be ready. 
Man, so you must have like had night. I mean, yeah, I've had radio dreams or radio nightmares, as we call them, because I've been in intense radio. Uh, you know, I've been a part of pretty big shows and things of that nature where, you know, the pressure is always on. We, I was a part of a, you know, a nationally syndicated morning show. And, you know, you're always having these little radio nightmares where what if the microphones don't work or uh, <laughs> what if I oversleep? You must have had a million of those <laughs> bad dreams about playing practices with Michael Jordan. I would be like every day would be a pain in the butt for that. Pain in the butt. I thrive for. I love the challenge. You, you, I mean, I, I played with Chris Mullen at St. John's in the Big East against. I knew two to you know, depending on how good St. John's was, I was going to play against Patrick Ewing two to four times a year. Jeez. And and I relish those. And playing with Michael for me was fun because it helped me stay focused. It helped me be better and get ready for the big games and the big moments. And I appreciate it because when you get to the finals, that attention is unbelievable. You can't, again, we're back in the nineties, so it's not even, it's even worse today, but it was so bad with the attention and the distractions and everything. If you couldn't keep your focus through a practice, there's no way you're going to be able to do it through a playoff run. And that was the beauty of it is it really, you know, my first time going to the playoff, the, well, I've been to the Western conference finals with the Dallas Mavericks but going to the NBA finals, I was ready for it because every day in practice, it was intense and the buildup to it was growing and growing. And I was learning every day what to expect when we get there and to finally then win a championship and, and know the hard work that you put in and how hard it was to get there. It, it really is the pinnacle of, of the sport and to accomplish that in your craft and to be the part of the best is, is an amazing feat and, Obviously, something I'll treasure forever. High school Michael Jordan, college Michael Jordan, playing with Michael Jordan. How different was he? Especially, I mean, was he like that in high school too? When you played against him in the, in the or played with him in the uh, McDonald's All American in college, did you see a lot of that, or was it like, oh my god, now that he's oh, in the NBA, he's a lot different? Or oh my god, nothing has changed. You saw the competitiveness in the games. He wanted to win, but you also saw the trash talking, and it was kind of a unique. He, he had, had, had buzzed there with him. Both of them were going to uh, North Carolina. Uh, Chris Mullen and I were both McDonald's All-Americans. We were both going to uh, St. John's. Uh, uh, Adrian uh, Branch was there. Uh, Patrick Ewing was there. And the trash talking that was going on in the buses to and from practices in the games was unbelievable. And you saw that competitive spirit in them. Back back then, so you and you knew he was good. I mean, I remember you know my my memories of the McDonald's All American game were you know I'm battling <clears throat> uh, down low and low post. I'd get a rebound, I'd turn around to outlet the ball, and Mike was already at half court. Jeez. And I just throw the ball to half court, and he did two three dribbles and he'd go down and dunk the ball. And I'm not saying he was waiting at half court that didn't come back. No, he was playing defense and challenging guys. But when I got the rebound and pivoted to give the outlet pass where you'd normally give it to, to the wing at the elbow to a guard, he was already at half court. And it was just fast break and just throw the ball down the court. And I remember doing that like 10 times. <laughs> just get the ball and, and, and turn around. And he's at half court wide open ready to go because he was just that intense and understood what he needed to do to win the game back then. And the same in college. You could, you could see it. Now, did I expect 
that he would be as good as he was and become the best player ever? Uh, no, I don't think anyone anyone saw that. But I knew he'd be good because I knew he competed and came out and worked hard every day. And then when I got to play with him here, I saw that firsthand. And I saw that being the best player in the world, he was coming to practice early. He was practicing hard every day. I mean, he came in, I remember early when he came back, and it was a 72 and 10 year. Uh, he came in the training room, and, and Tony was banged up a little bit, and Watt Harper was banged up a little bit. And they were getting ready to take the day off because they're, you know, they're banged up. Michael comes in. I was getting taped. I was the last one to get taped because I was a, bi- a big guy and got bumped, and I was getting treatment for something else, but getting ready to play. And Chip Schaefer's taping me up, and he looks at Harper and goes, what's wrong with you? And Harper's like, yeah, my knee's a little bit sore. And he said, you know, you know, screw that and get on the floor. We need you on the floor. Take care of your knee after practice. And he looked at Tony. He said, what are you in here for? He said, oh, my, my hand hurts. I, my thumb got ripped back. He goes, you got two hands. Use your other one. Get out on the floor. We don't need you in here. <laughs> and they both just looked at him, got up and went on the floor. And then he looked at me. He goes, what are you doing in here? I said, you, you should know. You bumped me on the tape table to get tapes. <laughs> this is where I'm getting tapes. He goes, all right. And <clears throat> So then I get taped and we go on the floor and everyone practiced. Nobody took days off from practice. Everybody practiced. You only, the only time you took days off of practice is when you couldn't walk or, or literally could not play. So it, it was, he just set the tone early and he was there and he was exactly the same way. He wouldn't take days off. He'd go out and practice hard. And, and, and when I say practice hard, we practice hard every day. Have you ever talked to him since and just said, hey, dude, thank you <laughs> does anybody ever like oh, you know does anybody ever say like, hey yeah. you know what have like, like a real conversation like you know i i know you you probably have a a reputation for being so rough but i just want to thank you for not just you know the ride but pushing me to that level we, we've we've talked about it we've several times even while we're going through it we we're talking about it but we he obviously he's in charlotte uh, from time to time we see him out there and and talk to him and it's like guys getting back together and they talk about how the families are, what's going on, and, and what you're doing. So that 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 has definitely been expressed. So at least at least from my point, it has, and and I know he knows that. So it's been great. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Dan. It was something that was great for me to play with. Obviously, timing is everything in the NBA. And when I first got here and retired, you, you thought, oh well. But we were still very good. Getting to play with Scotty was good. Being part of the Bulls organization was great. But when he came back. He, he made everybody better and really pushed us all to be the best that we can be. And, you know, I'm forever in debt because, you know, three championships is uh, something that just doesn't happen that much. No. And it's even, it's, it's now the most breathtaking documentary on television. You guys are being the tiger King for crying out loud. <laughs> now here's a, here, there's a story that you once shared with me that I, I, I want you to bring back up because I once asked you what it was like, I think with, with Phil Jackson, how, how that all worked. And you just told me that there, that every, in the beginning of every season or, or very often he would give you guys books all based upon your personalities and what he, he thought you guys would like. Yes. And <laughs> no, tell me, tell that story because I love it. <laughs> What would he? What kind of books would he do? I mean, how did how did he? He would just distribute books all of a sudden. Well, every every year before the first big road trip, the circus trip, he would give us um, a book, 
And his rationale on it was, I'm giving you something to do so you don't have to go out and sit in bars till three in the morning. I'm giving you something to do so you can better your life, be a better person, but also occupy your time and do something. And obviously he tried to give guys books that would uh, interest them because otherwise you'd throw the book on the shelf and, and not pay attention. So uh, he gave me some, some books that uh, he thought I'd like, and he was right. He gave me a couple of Tony Hillerman books, who were, which are about a, it's been a while since I read them. It's about a, a sheriff out in New Mexico that's uh, solving crimes and, and doing and a lot of wild uh, stuff going on in, in those books. And then the one book was uh, a Stephen Howard book that was uh, uh, Dirty White Boys, about two guys that uh, escaped from prison and uh, went on a killing spree to the country and just that, that whole chase and what happened there. So it, it was, it was a lot of fun. And we, obviously when the books first came out, we'd all, everyone would look at each other and Hey, what'd you get? What'd you get? And I remember the first year he gave Tony was, it was, it was, a, I don't know what you call it. Cause I was never a comic book guy, but it was, it was one of those more advanced comic books, <laughs> more pictures. Cause Tony's English wasn't great. So, you know, we teased Tony a little bit about that, but, it, it was all, you know, Phil's way of saying, look, <coughs> you don't have to go out running around and staying in bars and hanging out until two, three in the morning every night. Here's something that you can do. I, go I, back and uh, better, better yourself. I just like the fact that he was giving everybody books and things that he thought would match up with their personalities and what they'd really like. And then because he knew that Tony Kukoc didn't know the language, he would just give him comic books so he could look at pictures. Yeah, exactly. So, but but it was good, and, and uh, you know, some of the guys read them, some of the guys didn't. But it, it was uh, just a way, and you know, it, it's like a parent. You're doing your best to help your kid grow the best way, and uh, you're not going to hover over them, but you're going to give them something to do and hope that they uh, do the right thing. All right, now I'm gonna I'll, I'll finish. I'll, we'll we'll go. We'll speed this up a bit. Um, we'll talk today. LeBron James, had he played in the era that you were in playing right now? Or if you take the LeBron James and put him in the era of the 90s, how would he stack up? I'm sure he'd stack up pretty well. Uh, I'm sure he would adapt his game just as if Michael would adapt his game for today's game. Uh, they're competitors. And uh, no disrespect to LeBron, I think he's a great player and, and has been the greatest player in the league for, for a long time now. But I uh, 10 times out of 10, you give me LeBron in his prime or Michael in his prime, I'm, for a team, I'm picking Michael Jordan. And I just think he'll do, do more to make the team better uh, than LeBron. And I, you know, I talk to a lot of people about it, and so many people get angry and feel I'm disrespecting LeBron doing that. No, I'm not. You know, LeBron has more talent than just about everybody else that's ever played this game. But I tr- truly and thoroughly, with my heart, and my mind believe that Michael Jordan uh, has been the best player that's ever played this game. And again, I, I never saw Wilt Chamberlain play in person. I saw, I've seen clips and what he could do. I played against Kareem and I know what Kareem could do. And, and I was firsthand from the story I told her that I knew what he could do with his skyhook and how he played. And, and, and I caught him at the t- tail end of his career, but I think Michael is just that good and really makes everyone else around him better. If and and or tougher to play, and that's what you need. But as far as your question, how would LeBron do? He would do all right. He he would adapt to getting hit, and and the contact would be different. And he's got the body that could do it. So 
uh, I think he would adapt at the time. So he's still a great player. Put Michael Jordan in today's game. Loosen the rules a little bit. No hand checking. No really hitting. How many points would, would Michael Jordan average today? Oh, a lot more. Because now, now he doesn't have to worry about getting banged like that. Yeah. You, you, you've seen the clips of going to Detroit, getting knocked to the floor against New York. Can you imagine him going to the basket, not having to pick himself up off the floor because it's going to be you're going to get ejected from the game for flagrant fouls? That's why. He that's why I think, I think he would average almost seventy points. Yes, absolutely. If if he wanted to, yeah, he, he could absolutely do that. You go out there and score. And I say the same thing about Shaquille O'Neal. If Shaquille O'Neal was playing in today's game, you could not stop him because he just post up at the basket. He's going to get where he wants to go, and you can't foul him. You can't hammer him the way you used to hammer him. You get thrown out. So you talk about, well, he can't make foul shots. He wouldn't have to because you'd be down to three players in, in the first half because that's all. That's the only way you could stop him from scoring down low. Now, when you... So, but my, but, go ahead. But Michael would be absolutely outstanding. You, there's no way you could stop him. If you couldn't hold him, grab him, uh, you couldn't stop him at all. Joel Embiid, you look at a guy like that who probably could be the most dominant center right now if he actually played a post game, if he actually took the time to learn the footwork and maybe spend a good, you know, this offseason just studying Akeem Olajuwon. Does it make you scratch your head and just go, why, when you see a guy like that shooting 18-footers and trying to shoot like fadeaway threes and all that? Not right now because that's what the NBA is. What coaches will tell you, analytics say low post game is not there. But in my opinion, if Joel Embiid does establish a post game and people realize that, you know what, he's going to shoot 60% from down low, let's get him the ball, that, that's going to show. Because I believe everything's cyclical. And that's going to get guys, big guys again, to start posting up. And you'll, you'll find out that you can score. And, and that's analytics. It's a good thing because it gives you the numbers and you can figure out the facts. But as a coach... In my opinion, you've got to look at the facts and you've got to look at what team you have and what your team can do and figure out the best way to score. And Joel Embiid has a huge advantage in the low post nine times out of ten. And the good thing about him is if you put a big guy on him that where he no longer has that advantage, he can step out and hit those 18-foot jump shots. And that's, that is the thing to your point that you know he's a guy that really can do a lot of things and we just don't see enough of him scoring uh, down in a low post. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for hanging out with me. I know everybody who's pretty been a part of that team is probably pretty tasked right now to do all the interviews and all the talking and you're just one of my favorite people to talk to because I've been hearing your stories forever and I, I can't stop listening to it. I could do this for nine hours, but I know you got places to be. So thank you so much for coming out with me, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Dan, always a pleasure talking with you, my friend. And uh, how much do I owe you again for this? This will be $12.95. <laughs> you got it, brother. Take Stay care. Stay safe. I can't wait to see you back in the booth, and we'll talk soon, man. Talk to you then. All right now. Bye.